When I was a kid, I had many issues. One of my biggest issues was I was always trying to get a laugh all the time. And I think as a kid, it was a coping mechanism. I was kind of the class clown for a while. And uh, I don't know, I was pudgy and wore thick glasses. And I feel like I needed something uh, to be interesting to the masses of folks at school. And uh, unfortunately, I, I would often, I would tell jokes, bad jokes, uh, let's just be honest, dirty jokes, not good. I'd use curse words. Uh, I kind of had a foul mouth. I realized very quickly that uh, I could communicate. And unfortunately, that communication sometimes would lead me to say things I probably shouldn't say. I was immature, is my point. I was immature, uh, undisciplined. I did dumb things. Some of you may relate to my, my dumb things issue. But I feel like people early on would excuse my behavior because, well, Ben's young. You know, he's just a kid. Now, these excuses that sometimes we allow bad behavior because someone's young or inexperienced or you fill in the blank. Maybe, maybe you were that kid too. But the reality is, as I became an adult, I realized that I could keep doing those foolish, dumb, immature things, but at some point, it became pathetic. At some point, it's like, really? At some point, I realized, and this is the new cool thing to say, I needed to grow up and learn to adult. Uh, we hear this term all the time now, adulting. You've seen that probably on social media. I had to learn to man up, if you will. I had to learn to, to mature. I was just pathetic. And friends and adult mentors and even my boss would say, Ben, you really need to, you need to grow up. Time, Mr. Bauman, to learn to adult. And, and maybe, again, you've gone through some stages in your life where you realize that your immaturity isn't so cute anymore. Anybody deal with that in your life a little bit? Where, where people could excuse you, but you know deep down it's pathetic. Well, we're going to kick off a new series in the book of James. And James would, I think, like to, to tell us something. That God wants to tell you something through the work of the book of James to grow up, to mature a little bit. That there are things that are just not cool anymore. The things that were immature and cool and funny that could be excused before, now you, you need to grow up. You need to mature a little bit and to live out the ways of Jesus. The book of James that we're going to get into, I'm glad if you're brand new today, this is a great time to be here because we're kicking it off in James chapter 1 today. So if you have a, a Bible or a device, start finding James chapter 1. One of my favorite books in the entire collection we call the Bible. 66 books, this is one of my favorites. This is my go-to book so excited that you're here today with me. We're going to be hearing from God's word. James chapter 1. And James is going to give us, as one scholar put it, a beautifully crafted gut punch to the heart of how we live. And it's going to speak to our lifestyle and the thing. And we're going to see how following Jesus isn't just about orthodoxy. And that's a big theological $5 word. Orthodoxy is, is sort of right thinking, but James is going to challenge us to orthoproxy. And orthoproxy is right acting, right doing. And James is going to weave both of those together. That it's not just sometimes about what you know, it's about what you do with what you know. 
When I was a kid, there was a show called G.I. Joe. And it was a cartoon. At the very end of that cartoon, do you remember what it said? Knowing is half the battle. James is going to teach us about the other side of that battle, which is orthoproxy, right action. So it's going to be a gut punch. Are you ready for this? I'm excited. And if you're new with this, I'm Pastor Ben. Glad you're here today. If you're online, we see you. Hello. We are gathered like this, like Christ followers all over the globe. We are one big dysfunctional family of faith trying to follow the ways of Jesus in a difficult culture, right? That's who we are. And today we're going to lean into the book of James. So I hope you get your Bibles ready. There's some study guides if you need those. Let's uh, pray and get into today's message, which is in chapter 1, Standing in Confidence. Let's pray. Father, you're good and you're mighty and you're powerful. And you've called us to know a lot of stuff. But, Father, you've also called us to, to put into practice what we know. Father, your son Jesus told us if we, if we love him, we'll obey what he said. And so, Father, help us to have the, the, the courage to take those steps of, of, of right action today. And, Father, may you do a mighty work in our church family today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, James chapter 1. Are you ready for this? You have it in your device, your tablet. Your, there's so many ways to get to the Word of God now. In fact, you can listen to this as well. Some of you aren't readers. I encourage you to listen. It's five chapters. It's about 100 or so verses. You can do this. You can do this. Even the reader challenged out there, you can do this. James chapter 1. Let's start there. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes... In the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, and it's an inclusive term in Greek. It's brothers and sisters, okay. Brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, trials help us build steadfastness, and steadfastness helps us grow up. Perfect and complete means maturity. Don't think of like moral perfection or something like that, but it means maturity. Now, here's the deal. You may not know this. This is a Bible nerd moment for you. You're welcome. You're like, I need a Bible nerd moment, and you came today. You're welcome. James was one of the last books allowed into the collection. Now, some of you know your Bible, maybe uh, there's, a, there's 66 books. Some are in what we call the Old Testament. I think it's a horrible name for the Old Testament. It's First Covenant, I think, is better. But you have 66 books. James was one of the last ones to be allowed into the canon because of the next thing I'm going to say. Remember what it said in chapter 1, verse 1? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Problem. Which James is this? When they were putting together the collection of Scripture, that was one of the things they looked at. It's like, how do we know uh, that this is the right, right name? Now, to make matters worse, when they translated the Scriptures from the original languages into English, they decided to go for the, the, the name James. You know what it is in Greek? Jacob. So let's just add another layer of difficulty here that the actual Greek term is Jacob. We all know the name Jacob. If you know your Old Testament, Jacob became Israel, and Israel's kind of a big deal. So you know some of those names, even if you're new to the Bible. Jacob is the actual name, but they decided in their translation intelligence to make it James. Problem, which James? How many Jameses do you know in the Bible? Now, some of you may be new to the Scriptures, and that's okay, but... 
we at least have two, three, maybe five or more that this could be. First of all, one of the early disciples that Jesus called was a fisherman by the name of John, and he had a brother named James, and they had a common dad. His dad, the dad's name was Zebedee. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus would later call them lovingly, maybe, the sons of thunder. So is it James, the son of Zebedee? Is that the writer? Is that the one? That's a good choice. I mean, he was one of the original 12. So that's a good choice. Uh, Scholars call him James the Great, which is interesting. Uh, Maybe because he was, I don't know, pretty great guy. I don't know. But James the Great was the first option. Now, some scholars say, no, it can't be him because he was one of the first people killed in the book of Acts. When uh, the the Roman government was kind of coming down on this illegal religion called the way or Christianity, when they were coming down on it, uh, some, some, some of those early disciples were killed. One of them was James, the son of Zebedee. So it could be him. We don't know. Here's another option. And this was another one of the 12. James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, we don't know much about James, the son of Alphaeus. So scholars call him James the Less because we know less of him. Wow. You know, if you were, if you were doing some Bible scholarship, you might have given him a more creative name than that. But he's known as James the Less because we don't... What do we know about him? What's one thing we know? His dad's name was Alphaeus. That's all we know. So was it him? We don't know. Okay, one more. And I promise the Bible nerd thing will, will, will run its course. There was one more important James that most historians say was probably the one who wrote this. James, the brother of Jesus. Now, we know from church history that James was, was a brother of Jesus, certainly, but he also became pretty prominent in the early church. In fact, In the New Testament, we find him as kind of the leader, if you will, of the church of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was obviously where a lot of this started, and and all all these folks were Jewish, by the way. So that's really important to know. And James, the brother of Jesus, took a prominent role in the early church. So many scholars think it was James, the brother of Jesus, and theologians call him James the Just. Pretty nice. You got that term. So we have James the Great, James the Lesser, James the Just, we're not sure who it was, but whoever it was, okay, this, I'm lying. There's another nerd moment here. The Greek language is very, very polished in the book of James. I realize we're reading it from English. Spoiler alert, it wasn't originally written in English. Uh, If you didn't know that before today, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. It was written in other languages. And the common language of the day in the first century for the Roman Empire was what they call Koine Greek. Koine means common. We don't speak it anymore. In fact, it was a very short-lived version of Greek. Most people, when they think of Greek, they think of the big letters on the sorority or the frat houses around some college campuses. That's not Koine Greek. That's classic Greek. Think Socrates, Aristotle, that's classic Greek. If you, if you use Koine Greek that they used in the first century, modern Folks in Greece wouldn't understand you, and Socrates wouldn't have understood you. So it was a very tight window. What was interesting is that the scriptures say that Jesus came at the right time in human history. That's what Galatians says. At just the right moment, God said, this is the time I'm going to be born into human history. Guess what made that so great? 
everybody in the world spoke one common language. And what was that? Koine Greek. What a great time for God to come into human history when everybody spoke the same language. So originally this was in Koine Greek. James, whoever it was, one of those three, wrote very, really, really nice Greek. And he wrote it with the flair and the intensity of a Hebrew person, a Jewish person. So it's interesting. Clearly we know that James was very fluent in Greek and he was very well-versed in Hebrew theology. So that's pretty amazing. There's about 108 verses. Here's another fun fact. About half of them are action-oriented. So about half of this thing is... All right, here's something to do. Here's some things to do. Here's some. So it's very kind of in your face. We could give you more God information, but at some point you got to put it into action. So it's very action-oriented. About 50 or so verses are just simply imperatives. It's like one call to action in every other verse. It's pretty amazing. And, and actually, James borrows a lot from the Sermon on the Mount. So as we're going through this series... If you're familiar with the Sermon on the, on the Mount, which Jesus had recorded in Matthew, I think, what, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of that, James obviously knew something about. Here's something that also that we have to talk about. James is going to speak a lot about action. He's gonna, we're going to see it here in a minute. He's going to say, be a, a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Uh, he's going to give us lots of action. Some have said, well, the book of James... I don't know, because it seems like James and another big writer of the New Testament, Paul, are at odds. Some would say, well, James writes all about this action, but I thought we were saved by faith. Isn't that what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2? For by grace you have been saved through faith? Yes. So, but some would say, well, there's a, there's a, there's a discrepancy, because James seems to be all about doing stuff, and, and Paul writes about you just have to have faith. Is there a discrepancy? I don't think so. I, I like what one scholar that I wrote or that I read this week said. He said, you know, it's, Paul is writing in his writing, say in Ephesians that I just mentioned, he's writing about what affects our salvation, like what causes it, and that is God. By, by faith you've been saved. It's a gift of God. So Paul's writing of how it happens, and then James is writing about now that it's happened, here's the sorts of things you ought to be up to. If you're saved by grace, awesome. You're in. You're in the kingdom. Now you start walking the ways of the kingdom. So James is rock, walk, or he's talking about what happens after you, you decide to say yes to Jesus. Here's how to walk in his ways. Does that make sense? So I don't think there's any kind of discrepancy. I think they both work together that it's faith that saves us, but now we walk in this life and we're working out what that means. And in fact, if you'll notice that first first verse, James writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And you're like, what does that mean? We didn't talk about that. Well, dispersion really had to do with the fact that because Christianity, or, or actually it was called the way for a long time, because it wasn't an official Roman sanctioned religion, it was persecuted. And uh, they had a, a major persecution. You can read about this in the book of Acts. And a major persecution happened early on and the church was pretty young. And so what happened is people scattered. And so they call that the dispersion. And so the Jews that were saying yes to Jesus were now on the run because once they said yes to Jesus, they were now in kind of a, a legal problem. 
with the Roman government. So they were everywhere around, around the Roman Empire. So these Jews were the folks that had said yes to Jesus, and they're everywhere now. And now James is trying to help them work out how do you be a good Jew who said yes to Jesus? Hang on to this. How do you be a good Jew who said yes to Jesus in a very pagan culture? We never have to deal with living the ways of Jesus in a difficult culture, do we? Never have to worry about that. But they did. And so James is trying to help them understand, here's how you walk the ways of Jesus in a culture that wants you to bow down to Zeus and Apollo and, you know, do the temple sacrifices, do all that. How do you walk the ways of Jesus as a good Jew who said yes to Jesus? How do you walk those ways? And that's what James is really trying to do. And he's wanting to help those folks and us walk the ways of Jesus to mature in faith. That's what really this whole thing is about. So let's go to chapter one. We already read a couple verses from it. And um, I'm watching the clock because in first service, I, I, I may have gone a little, a little over, but I'm working hard. This is, this is going to be, you're going to be drinking from a, a fire hose for a bit, but I love this book. When I was a new Christian, I needed the book of James because I didn't know what to do. When you first say yes to Jesus, you're excited, right? Some of you remember that. Some of you maybe haven't said yes to Jesus, and I encourage you to do that. But once you do, you're ready. You're ready to learn. Well, how do I walk the ways of Jesus in American culture? And you're wanting to know. James was so helpful. Let's look at James chapter 1. If you've got a Bible or device, let me just go through some things. First of all, remember, we talked about trials there at the beginning. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because trials do something interesting. They build your steadfastness, and they help you mature. Now, now James is going to come back to that in chapter 5. But sometimes we tend to blame God when things get difficult. And I think we might have another angle here from James's perspective that actually God isn't the one doing this to you, and God is with you. He sees you. He wants to help you through this so that you can mature we want to fast-track everything in our culture, don't we? We want to fast-track it, put it in, in the microwave. I don't want to wait to, for the stove to get warm. We want to fast-track everything. And James is trying to help us understand, wait a minute, some things you can't fast-track. Maturity takes time. So he says, count it all joy. And then look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you got to do? To ask, right? Ask. ask. Ask him. And does God say, nope, I'm not going to give it to you? What is it? Let's, let's read it. I, I, if any of you lacks wisdom, this is verse 5, ask God who gives generously with, to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Who needs some wisdom here? Who could use extra measure of wisdom? Have you asked today? Ask God for wisdom. Now, we're going to talk about verse 6 because many, many bad, distorted theologies have come out of verse 6. Did you see what verse 6 said? But when you ask, you know, you need to do it without doubting. Many bad theologies have come out of that. We'll come back to this. But if you lack wisdom, what do you got to do? I would like wisdom. That's what you do. Ask. So then, then uh, he speaks about the rich and the poor and the, 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 the tension that happens with the rich and the poor. You'll see that in verse 9. We don't have that tension anymore, thankfully. We don't have a tension between the rich and poor here in our, our, our culture. Yes, we still do. But James is saying, look, watch out, folks that are trusting in your riches because things tend to 
go sideways regularly like the stock market. But things happen and it doesn't always stay up and to the right. And so trusting in riches is not a good idea. It's going to fade away. Look at verse 12. I memorized this as a kid. If you are new to memorizing scripture, I encourage you to do this one. I love this one because I want to know this is going somewhere. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I, that verse was money to me. That was money to me. I needed to hear that because as a teenager trying to follow the ways of Jesus with hormones going crazy, I needed help. I needed a lot of help. And this verse helped me. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. It's not going to be like this forever, but persevere under trial. Because what does trials tend to do? They, try, they tend to bring steadfastness. And what does steadfast help us do? Mature. This is going to be a recurring theme in James. Grow up, people. That's what he's going to say. Okay, I put that in my words. But blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Ah, oh, so good. And then where does temptation come from? Whenever, whenever something bad happens, we rush to blame God. And we, we screw up, and we're like, well, it's God's fault. Or we do the other thing. Well, Satan made me do it. We do all these little things to put the blame on someone else other than me, my, my, I. James is trying to help us understand good stuff comes from God. Temptation comes from all kinds of places, but it ain't coming from God. And when you're tempted, God sees you and wants to walk with you in that because he understands, like James is starting to help us understand, that trials build steadfastness, and steadfastness helps us do what? Mature. We need maturity. So temptations, they're not, they're not God's business here, but he sees us. Sin so often is something we home grow, folks. Look at James here. We're homegrowing that. We want to blame everybody for that, but sometimes we know exactly what we're doing when we walk into it. Can I get an amen out here somewhere? We know we do it. Don't play this game that it's someone else's fault. Uh, if, you're, if you're having a, a, any kind of th thought pattern in your mind, you know that it's bogus. We do this all the time. We blame, we blame, we blame. Sometimes it comes right from our own hearts. Don't be deceived. Every good gift comes from who? From God. Don't be playing that game. Oh, I love that. Isn't that good? Look, look at verse... Look, this is Theology 101, folks. You came today. This verse we could spend years on. Look at verse 19. You know this. I call it the QSS theology. Quick, slow, slow. Do you already know what I'm talking about? Be quick to listen, slow to, and slow to become. Think of that right there. Think of that statement and apply it to the last couple years on social media. Come on. Quick to, you know, you're going to have this memorized before you leave here. Quick to, listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. QSS theology. Quick, slow, slow. Oh, what that could have done. How that could have helped us the last year or so. Two years, three years, whatever it is now. Quick to listen. How many are good at listening in here? How many would listen for a second? You ever done this? You've been in a conversation and you think you already know what the other person's going to say. So you're already starting the conversation. They haven't even finished what they were saying. You're all that. So you're just going to figure out what they're going to say. Quick to listen. How good are you at listening? Are you actually listening when someone talks to you? I realize that I'm talking to you. <laughs> As a preacher, it feels weird to say that. But what about slow to speak? 
How many of you could use some wisdom on how often you open your mouth? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. But you know what I'm saying? Slow to, slow to become angry. Okay, I'll give you an example. This happened to me this week. I was trying to do a good deed. Uh, I was going into Salem, and I was under a particular bridge waiting, and there are generally some, some homeless folks there in the park. You know exactly where I'm talking about if you've driven to Salem. I was there, and there was a guy on my driver's side, and I often have little blessing bags that I keep in my truck. Uh, I encourage you to do that. It's a good thing, uh, but it really... It's going to sound like I'm all pious right now, but let me just get into this. So I, I, I rolled down my window. It was a red light. Red light. I had people behind me, people in front of me, red light. Rolled down the thing, not interrupting the flow of traffic. Have I said that already? Okay. So then I rolled down the window, and I hand the guy a bag. I said, hey, you know, blessings on you, man. Hope this helps. Roll it back. Light is still red. Somebody behind me honks. Like, get moving. Light, still red, car in front of me. I just got done with this big, you think I'd feel good about myself. You know what I'm thinking now? I don't even want to tell you what I'm thinking right now. Because <laughs> I want to get out of that truck. You know, you've, you've been in there? You've been there? I want to get out of that truck and give a piece of my mind to that person, right? The good deed is like, here, take that stuff. I'm mad at this guy. That's what I started to do. Slow to become, I was even in the middle of doing something nice. Something that I thought I would brag to you about. But now I can't even brag to you about it because I was angry at the person behind me. Slow to speak. Slow. You see how we could spend a whole... I can't spend the time on this. Memorize this verse, QSS. Do you already have it? Quick to... Slow to... Slow to become... Man, talk about that beautifully crafted gut punch right there. You're welcome. That's just... We haven't, we're not even through chapter 1. Oh, my goodness. And let's keep going. Verse 22. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. Oh, we love our Bible studies and study guides, and there's, there's good things with all those. I'm not saying that. We, we, we love our conferences. We got our Christian bookstores. We got all kinds of God info coming at us all the time. And what is James saying? I think you know enough. Do the next right thing. We, we do this a lot. We want to have more. We want to talk about doing good. James says, hey, be doers of the word, not just hearers. We are so good at hearing, but not so good at putting into practice. Right? What is James challenging us? Proper orthodoxy, right thinking, but more importantly, proper orthoproxy, right acting. And James is saying, don't just be a doer of the word. Actually put it into practice. Don't be like that person that kind of sees what needs to happen. He's going to talk about looking at himself in the mirror here in a few, but looking at yourself and then totally walking away and forgetting what you needed to do. He's called us to do. And now here's verse 26, okay? Verse 26. There's so much here. There's so much. Come on. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He is not pulling punches, is he? How many times have you said something that you want to pull it right out of the air and pretend it never happened? You ever done that? You ever put your foot in your mouth? I guess Apple's touting this new technology. Have you seen this? 
where, have you heard about this? Apple, you know, Apple company, they're, they're going to have a technology where you could, you could edit or delete a text that you sent. As long as the other person hasn't read it yet. Be slow to speak, tweet, post. Ugh. Every word we say, it matters. You know that words matter? And if we're not careful about the words we say, our religion, now I realize religion's gotten a bad rap in our culture. Religion is not a bad thing if you think about it. If someone says they work out religiously, you'd say, oh, that's a bad thing. No, it's not. It's a good thing. They're, they religiously watch what they eat. I think that's a kind of a good thing. Religion is not a bad thing. Religion is worthless with our words. What words do you say? And, and, and then to counter that, what does James do to end the chapter? Here's what proper religion looks like. It's going to the right Bible studies and having the right study Bible. Nope. What does he say? Religion, our Father accepts, and this is something that anybody who's ever read the Old Testament would go, yep, because one of the biggest problems that Israel had all the way through history in the Bible, they forgot the aliens, orphans, and widows. And what does James say? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself from being unstained by the world. You want to know what true religion is? Put it into practice. Who are you visiting? Who are you helping? That's chapter one. Just chapter one right there. Oh my goodness. And, and I don't have time to go into it all today, but here's something that I want you to look at. And this is another Bible nerd moment. The Bible is Jewish, very, very Jewish. From cover to cover, this is a Jewish document. So the people, even in the first century, the followers of Christ, all knew their stories. They all knew the stories. And one of the things that good Hebrew boys and girls did when they were younger is they memorized the first five books of the Bible. They call them the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How many people have that memorized? Every Jewish boy and girl would know the Torah, especially the boys. If they didn't know it, they're in trouble. And they would go on and some would become rabbis, very few would, but they knew the text. And here's something that happens in Jewish literature. It's something called a chiasm. And here's what I want you to do. A chiasm is like a truth sandwich. You'll find this all the way through the Old Testament, over and over and again. If you look, read the book, uh, book of Psalms, the collection of songs, chiasms happen over and over. It's a literature term, but it basically means a truth sandwich. So there's something in the middle that's really important, and then some similar things on the, the bread part. Does that make sense? Here's an example from JFK. John F. Kennedy said this. This is a chiasm. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. That's what they consider a chiasm, a truth sandwich. We have some things that are repeating, but you have one central theme. This, is hap this happens all over the Old Testament. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to apologize to you right now. Once you see this start to happen in the Bible, you can't unsee it. It happens over and over and over again. The entire book of Leviticus is a truth sandwich. You know what's in the middle of the truth sandwich? The Day of Atonement. Why would that be so important? Dealing with sin. What? Anyway, so I give that to you. You're welcome. 
That's a nerd moment. It's called a chiasm. You'll find this over and over again. Some people take the book of James like this, and they'll say, well, we talked about suffering and endurance in chapter 1. We already covered that. Trials, remember? Steadfastness, maturity. He'll come back to it in chapter 5. In the middle, here's the important stuff. Doing the word. Doing what God has called you to do. So the truth sandwich is in the middle, and then you have similar ideas on the outside. You're welcome. You'll never read scripture the same again. Okay. All right. I got to wrap this up, folks. This is, there's just too much. There's too much. I knew it when I was working on the sermon this week that, like, I'm going to watch that clock just, like, count down. I can hear it counting down in my head. Here's the deal. Let's talk about verse 6. What does verse 6 say? If you ask for wisdom, but then you doubt, that's not good. Who doesn't doubt in here? You know that the original 12 disciples, the very last swan song of Jesus, he is jettisoning off, and his disciples are there, and he gives what we call the Great Commission, right? Says that his disciples were there, some doubted. The disciples doubted. So how can we look at verse 6? Do you see verse 6? Right? If you ask for wisdom, right, that's all good. But, but, it, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea that is driven, tossed by the wind. That, that person, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What do we do with that? There's been a lot of theologies tossed around out there that, you know, your, your loved one would have been healed if you just would have had faith. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Are you kidding me? If you just, if, you know, it's all on you. So if you didn't have enough faith, if you had a little bit of doubt, then God's not going to come through for you. What kind of weird, wacko game are we playing with God when we start doing that? This is not what James is talking about. We all are going to have doubts. We're going to have fears. What James is talking about is confidence and trust in God, even when you have no idea what the outcome's going to be. That's what James's whole letter is about maturity. And maturity means to be full and complete and lacking in nothing means you trust God with full confidence even though you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. That's what James is talking about. And I, I, could, I, could, I could spend lots of time on bad theologies around this verse. Look, salvation is always God's gift. He loved you before you were ever born. Before you made your first mistake, he already loved you. Write that off. We, that's, that's a given. And, and when we realize he loves us that much, now we want to put into practice all the things that God has, has, has offered for us. And so we're not talking about having enough faith. I mean, James is saying when your faith reaches this particular level on this particular measurement stick, then God has to do something for you. James doesn't play that game. It's about maturing in faith, having a soul anchor in the Lord, as Hebrews talks about, that we trust God even though we don't quite know what's going on. Does that make sense? Rather than some kind of weird, uh, whacked out theology that says somehow uh, God's not going to do it if I don't have enough faith. And what what James is implying here is that, you know, we need to trust God uh, that he's got it under control. Ephesians 4 talks about this idea of trusting God and having confidence in faith. And, And here's how Paul writes it. Now, remember, we're talking about the difference between James and Paul. There is no discrepancy. But listen to how, how Paul would write about this. He's speaking to uh, the church leaders, and he said, and he gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip, equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all reach the, to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature 
adulthood, manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of, of, of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, with, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. Christ is the head, and we grow up in the body. So we're, we're growing up in maturity. So what, what we're talking about in that verse is that trusting that God is good, even when we don't understand, that's what maturity is about, trusting in God. Here's a few things I want to leave you with, and I've got one point, and it's this. To stand in confidence in this faith journey that James is, is writing about is to realize that growth is expected and should happen. Growth is expected and should happen. Grown, living things grow. So if you're a person who's early on in their faith, you know, five years down the road, there should be some things that God has taken you through. You should be growing and maturing. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Just means that we're going to be growing and maturing. And that is something that's natural and should happen. Here's the second thing. Spiritual maturity has nothing to do with your physical age. I have known some very immature 70-year-olds. But I've known some pretty mature 15-year-olds. Spiritual maturity is not an age thing. It's a walking with Jesus thing. Being doer of the word, not just to hear. To be QSS. Quick to, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That's the road to maturity. All right. Growth is a process, not a performance. Transformation takes time. It takes time. And here's the last thing. You can grow as much as you want. I really believe that God wants us to grow deep, to go deep, to, to, to get past the surface waves on the top and to get deep with him. And, and he allows that growth to happen. Are you, are you wanting to grow? Like, James is writing this letter to, to these dispersed, you know, Jewish Christians, and they're wanting to grow. They're climbing. They're, they're climbing, and they want to grow. You can grow as much as you want. How deep do you want to get? So here's my idea. It's time to grow up, folks. Mr. Bauman, it's time to adult. You, it's time to adult. Mature. Grow up. James is writing to us to mature in faith, to grow up. Don't just know. Do. Don't just know. Do. You know enough. When Jesus said, love one another, serve one another, you know enough. You know enough to get some things into practice, don't we? We know enough. Now, Bible, Bible studies are good. Preachers, they can do their thing and tell a sermon. That's all good. That's helpful, but you know enough to take the next right step. Let's pray. Father, you're powerful and mighty. Thank you for your word. Thank you for encouragement. Father, we want to be people who are maturing in faith. Lord, help us to, to mature, to take those next steps that, Father, we would be able to put into action what you've already called us to do, to love one another, to serve one another, to bring your good news to the people around us that are already in our circle of influence. Father, help us to be, to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And, Father, empower each of us this week to do better than I did, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And, Father, do your work through us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.